Reconciliation, that's the theme that we've been embarking on, we've been covering, uh, or starting to cover this series in 2 Corinthians. This letter written by Paul, self-described apostle of Christ, to a Christian community in Corinth. Corinth was a Roman city in Greece, predominantly made up of Romans, Greeks, and Jews. It was populous, it was successful, it was a major administrative and a trade center within the empire. It was the habitation of the upwardly mobile. Paul, on the other hand, was short, balding, and a tent maker. He was also an apostle. And through a miraculous conversion where he literally saw the light, he went from Jesus' enemy to his follower. He had his entire life turned upside down. He went from blameless in the sight of the Jewish law to one profoundly aware of his dependence on the grace and life-giving spirit of God. He realized that what he had staked his hope in had passed away. And that something better, something more glorious was available to him through Christ and the indwelling power of the Spirit of God. Paul's relationship with the Christian community in Corinth was complex to say the least, and sometimes quite difficult. If you're ever looking for evidence that the early church was not just sunshine and rainbows, take a look at 1 Corinthians. To be honest, I think those upwardly mobile, sophisticated folks in Corinth were a bit embarrassed by Paul. He didn't look the part of of an apostle, didn't sound like one either. Nothing slick about him. Too much passion, too little propriety. But Paul is the kind of person not to give up on people to give up on people he, care, he cares deeply about. He isn't willing to let them go without a fight. Paul is the kind of person who maybe doesn't tell you what you like to hear, but tells you what you need to hear. It's kind of friend worth having, I think. Now, Toby and Sarah have already emphasized the theme of reconciliation, and 2 Corinthians is certainly about that. It is about Paul and these people seeking to be reconciled to one another in the messiness of life. The key, as we shall see, is how they get there. This morning we should be looking at chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 4, all the way to chapter 4, verse 12. In this passage, Paul seeks to justify his authority as an apostle of Christ. That is, one whose words carry the weight of one authorized by Christ to preach the good news of Jesus. And to do so despite the, other, despite the efforts of others outside the church, and it would appear inside the church, to undermine Paul and his message. Principally, when it comes to following the Jewish law. For this, and other reasons, some turbulent water has gone under the bridge of their relationship. Paul's letter is about, setting, uh, is about seeking to set things straight, to get things right. In this particular passage, it involves two things. One, a defense of his authority, which he explains does not come from himself, but through Christ. And two, which he focuses on most most directly, is the inspiring message of the gospel, which brings confidence, hope, light, and life, whose glory, unlike the Jewish law, is unending. Now, as um, for our scriptural passage, I'm actually going to start a little bit before what's been set for me, um, uh, beginning with uh, something that Sarah ended with last week, because it's all part of the same thought. So, um, here we go. 
Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Surely we do not need to, as some do, to get letters of recommendation to you or from you. Do we need to do that? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter of Christ prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much, glori- how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the, with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this, to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It is not being removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is not from God, sorry, is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, 
so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. First impressions. The first thing I'll say, to be honest, is I hope that letter reads better in Greek. Because, I don't know about you, but it's a bit tough going in English. Lots of veils, lots of glory, lots of tangents. The second thing is that when I look at these verses, to be honest, at least the ones that jump out, I see lots and lots of, shall we say, cheesy worship songs. (laughs) The kind that appear in my head at random times in the day, middle of the night, soundtrack of my life. It's a blessing. I'd be happy to pray for you at the end of the year. Anyways, but mostly it's not just the cheesy worship songs in general, but the ones played, and indeed the ones I have played many, on many occasions at summer camp, many years ago back in Vancouver. For quite a few years, I was a camp counselor. Yes, it's true, I was made responsible for other people's children. Teenage guys, no less. You can understand how much fun that was. And one of my enduring memories was that you would have these, you know, 100 or so kids, mostly between the ages of 13 and 15, bouncing around to these songs each morning and evening at chapel. I mean, not all of them, of course. There are still the cool kids sitting in the back. These purveyors of studied nonchalance, angular haircuts, straight emo. Now, these songs are great. And the experience was joy-filled. It really was. But it's remarkable how easy it is to take things like being persecuted, not abandoned, or where the Spirit of the Lord is, is, there is freedom, and turn them into the equivalent of a Lego movie theme song. Everything is awesome. Everything. Excuse me. (laughs) But there's evidently much more to these words than three chords in a major key. These are about hope tempered by hardship. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, yes. And for Paul, that means freedom from his past of persecuting the faith of those he would later share. It's freedom from a jail cell, freedom from an angry mob, from a shipwreck getting washed up on the shore. It is freedom not from hardship, but freedom right there in the midst of it. You need to keep that in mind, I think. Paul, for reasons that have little to do with him, has taken on the role of Christianity's strident legalist. To, well, in contrast, to put it bluntly, buddy Christ in his amazing live and let live ministries. You guys ever seen Dogma? No? This idea of kind of uh, updating the Catholic Church, idea of buddy Christ, being like, hey, don't like the idea of none of this judgmental stuff. Now, what I mean, of course, is this pernicious idea that Paul took the liberality, the generosity of the gospel of Jesus, and turned it into religion. Now, this is nonsense. The central theme of much of Paul's whole converted life was to convince people of the freedom of Christ and the great leveling power of the Spirit. In Christ, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free. His opponents, in fact, were those who wanted to add things to this good news, to make it conditional on other requirements. 
And they did so not necessarily for bad reasons. They were accustomed to measuring righteousness by their ability to fulfill the law. But as Paul reiterates time and time again, if you bring back the law, if you bring back Torah, Jesus died for nothing. So then, when Paul does talk about the way Christians ought to behave, it is principally because he doesn't uh, want Christ followers, number one, to use their newfound freedom as an excuse to abuse other people. Two, to become indistinguishable from the world around them, as if Jesus' life and death didn't change a thing about the way they were lived, um, about the way that they lived their life. And so we come back to the passage. Some outside the community and some inside too have been trying to add something more to the gospel, in particular relating to things in the Jewish law. And this is what seems to be happening uh, um, in Paul's allusions to the Exodus narrative, this idea of letters written on stone, right? The covenant, Ten Commandments. And the veil, that referring to that worn by Moses to cover his shining face. So Paul seeks to reassert his apostolic authority for the sake of the gospel. He says, such confidence we have through Christ before God. In a sense, he's also saying, such confidence we have through Christ before you, church in Corinth. As far as Paul is concerned, the confidence of a Christ follower ought to be in Christ. Not through his or her ability to fulfill the law, to follow the rules. The law that was given at Sinai in Exodus Those letters written in stone, it was a good gift, but its time has passed. And besides, it brought judgment. It brought death to those who could not live up to its standards. According to Paul, however, the Spirit of God does not pass away. And better yet, it produces righteousness. It enables right living and it offers reconciliation. Not only with God, but with each other through the presence of his spirit. It offers, as Paul calls calls it, a new covenant written not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. It's a wonderful image, something worth reflecting on, I think. Now, it must be admitted that following the Torah is not an especially big concern for us at the Kingdom Vineyard in St. Andrews. So let me put what is going on here in a different way, in the form of a question. In what do we put our confidence? Where does our hope come from? Do we put our confidence in things that are passing? Our talents, our intelligence, our jobs, our relationships, our causes? Or is our confidence ultimately grounded in that which is eternal? Now, as we've seen, Paul also says a lot about veils. In the book of Exodus, Moses' face was said to shine in the presence of God. He would then put a veil over his face when he left the presence to speak to the Israelites. Now, Exodus does not actually go into details as to why this is so. Um, I guess one could assume it involved not wanting to freak the people out. Though there is a minority reading, by that which I mean mine, that thinks that the whole problem could have been solved by the timely invention of sunglasses. Kind of wandering around, Moses comes to speak to you like, ah, Moses, you forgot the veil. But uh, happily, 
I've got my sunglasses. We can continue our conversation. No veils needed. Problem solved. If only I was there. (laughs) But more seriously, though, for Paul, it is a further extension of his general point. That trying to bring back Old Testament law to the gospel is only going to lessen its glory. Only to reduce its power. To make its truth truth less accessible. And again, as I said before, Jewish law may not be that much of a concern for us today. At least in um, the present audience. So it's worth asking ourselves a further related question. Do we allow the gospel to speak to us without filters? Without that veil? Do we allow God to speak to us without first setting the agenda for the conversation? Paul then goes on to contrast the unveiled gospel with those who employ secret and shameful ways. Who use deception and distort the, and distort the word of God. He speaks also of the God of the age, by which he means Satan. Blinding people from seeking the truth. And that only Christ can bring about that unveiling. For Paul, gospel life is all about being out in the open. It is clear. It is bright. It is the light of the morning sun that picks up all the breadcrumbs on the counter and dust on the floor. It's a great joy to my wife's heart. Yeah, clarity is a double-edged sword, I think. And it's open, it's clear, and it's pure light because it doesn't come from us. Precisely because it doesn't come from us. It is not about the messiness of our agenda, our hurt, our egos, our histories. It's not about self-promotion, getting the pick from just the right angle. As Paul says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. I'll say it again. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And we are servants to that end. It is his face that shines with the glory of God. Paul is the vessel for that glory. And so are we. The all-surpassing power is God's, not ours. That is why, even as we are hard-pressed, we are not crushed. Even as we are perplexed, we do not despair. Even as we are struck down, we are not destroyed. The Spirit of the living God remains. This is not everything is awesome. But on the other hand, it isn't the coffee house singer-songwriter guy. Oh, now I'm going to pick on the, scenester, on the uh, hipsters. Plucking away at another mournful song about another difficult time in my life. This message is from someone who kept up the fight despite opposition. Despite suffering, despite difficulty, despite betrayal. Because he knew where his hope was found. His assurance was grounded in what is unrelenting. What is unassailable, what is unending. The spirit of God through Christ Jesus. And it is for this reason that Paul could tell the community at Corinth, we suffer as Christ suffered so that the life of Christ might be evident in you. Say that again. We suffer as Christ suffered so that the life of Christ might be evident in you. 
And he may as well have been talking to you, right? This is the apostle to the Gentiles. Our forefathers and mothers. Now, how about that for reconciliation? We believe in a God whose son would die to reconcile those who had abandoned him. That is the gospel that Paul preached, and that is the gospel that Paul lived. So then, to conclude, what does it mean for us to follow in these footsteps? We need to pray that our confidence, our security, our identity, our hope is found first and foremost in Christ, whose glory does not fade. It's particularly a message, I think, for you, uh, for the undergrads. Not that this is a particular issue, but just especially with the pressures of thinking about what comes next, the pressures of, man, trying to get your, <laughs> trying to get your essays in on time, right? Thinking about these final examinations, this dissertation, like this stuff does not define you. Shouldn't let you keep, it shouldn't keep you up at night, right? We also need to recognize that the presence of the Spirit of God is not about a quick fix, a band-aid for what is broken inside us, but is fundamentally the means by which we know that our story does not end at the grave. That's the end goal. That is where our assurance lies. Now, there is certainly great consolation in being met by the Lord. And I encourage you, you know, come forward, receive prayer, meet with the Lord. But the greater consolation is to know that His promises for the future are true. That's where the good stuff lies. Furthermore, when and where trouble occurs in God's family, in the body of Christ, and it does time and time again from Paul's day to our own, how we respond to that is indicative of where we put our trust, where we place our identity. Can we endure for the sake of another? Can we die to the things that are passing away for the sake of what is eternal? Do we need to be reconciled to the greater, of, to the, <clears throat> to the greater glory that God offers us in His Son through His Spirit? What do we need? produce confidence, that produce that hope, to know that the grave is not the end of the story. Well, I'm going to conclude in prayer, and uh, as soon as we're done, um, Tim and whoever else will come up and uh, lead, and uh, just encourage you that um, if this is something that uh, stirring in your heart, that you would seek prayer for it. This is not something, you know, if it's something that you're, you're carrying. Um, that's a burden. This is not something you're supposed to carry by yourself. But also, if you're in that position where you're kind of really struggling where, where the next step is going to lead you, if you really feel like your identity is in flux, I encourage you, seek prayer, seek God first. Everything else will be added afterwards. So let me pray and I'll invite you up.